Hello, everyone. This is Prince Shakur, and welcome to another episode of the Creative Hour podcast. On this episode, we have Ashunda Norris. This episode is so special because it is maybe the first episode of this podcast that is recorded abroad. Ashunda and I spent all of June in Saint Paul de Vence, France, which is this beautiful town in southern France where the writer James Baldwin spent the last 17 years of his life and passed away. And we were there as a part of La Maison Baldwin Artist Residency. And this episode is special because it represents how Ashunda and I spent so much of our time there making art, becoming friends, which is we drank a lot of rosé and just talked and talked and talked in a way that brought me so much joy and wisdom and gratitude. And I knew that I wanted to talk to Ashunda for the creative hour because I just wanted to freeze this kind of period of time in my mind and to allow other people to get to know her and her amazing artwork. So in this episode, we talk about a lot of different things, but among them, we talk about learning to love reading at a young age, the importance of a private art-making practice, how TV with her dad and the show Girlfriends inspired her to do spec script writing, removing the stigma from so many Black Southern experiences that women have, unpacking the notion of gender as a negotiation, and her advice for avoiding self-erasure in your work. All of the works and pieces of art mentioned in this are going to be linked in the show notes, as well as Ashunda's website and her work. Born and raised in rural Georgia, Ashunda is a Black feminist multidisciplinary artist with creative work that encompasses film, poetry, archiving, and, and critical scholarship. Her art centers the complexities of Black Southern womanhood and girlhood, magical spiritual traditions of Southern Black folk, Black futures, and fugitivity. So I can't wait for you to listen to this episode. So without further ado, listen to it. (laughs) And the Creative Hour is broadcast on Verge FM, an online DIY radio station based out of Columbus, Ohio. Please like and rate The Creative Hour so other people can find this podcast and enjoy these beautiful conversations that I get to have with these artists. And without further ado, please enjoy this episode. Welcome to the show. Hey, y'all. Thanks for having me. And um, just for context, can you tell everyone where we are? We're in St. Paul, Devance, France, James Baldwin's adopted hometown. And we've been here for about, what is three, it, three weeks? Yeah, it's like three <clears> weeks almost. And, uh, and one way I look at this show is just breaking down different parts of the artist's life that people might not know about. So can you just kind of like give an explainer of what an artist residency is and how this one is kind of set up? Sure. Usually with artist residencies, you have a specific particular amount of time to get work done. And sometimes it's two weeks. This one is actually four weeks where um, what I'm doing is working on a particular project, um, my poetry collection. So usually writers have something in mind that they want to work on, or sometimes they come with a blank slate. But most importantly, it's dedicated time away from your everyday you know, everyday life and everyday responsibilities to focus specifically on your craft. And how many of these have you done? This is my third or fourth one, I think. Yeah, fourth maybe. Okay. Yeah. Um, this one is great because I get to interact with people in the residency, like other residencies like Prince, and then also just with the locals um, in the village and who live in St. Paul. 
um, which has been really nice. The one before I was in complete isolation. So it just varies depending on what your goals are and kind of, you know, go with the flow of the area. And uh, on to kind of the first question, but what was young Ashunda like? Where did you grow up? Um, tell us about your younger self, your personality, uh, and a bit about your background. Okay, I grew up in the backwoods of Georgia. Um, literal backwoods. Like, you look behind my house, and there were woods, like creeks and streams. My grandma had um, two gardens. She had a chicken coop. She took care of her hens and her roosters, um, plum trees you know, rattlesnakes and all that kind of stuff. So I grew up as a country girl, uh, very lonesome kid. I was very lonely. So I talked to the plants. I talked to the animals in the backyard and things like that. So I was a super nerd, basically just in my own world. Um, like super nerd, like you were watching movies all the time or reading, or all, the reading time. all the time. My mom told me that I started reading at two. Um, so I've been reading since then. She said I soaked in books so I would watch you know, Sesame Street or watch Mr. Rogers and just really just soaking anything educational I was like really into. So books were kind of my saving grace because I was a kid that really didn't talk in school and really didn't like know how to make friends. And so the friends were people and the characters in the books. Yeah. So, yeah. And oh, I had a question, but it flew away. No. Oh, OK. OK. Um, I like that answer because I definitely agree in a lot of ways. I think of it in terms of like last year I went back to Jamaica and I saw, I don't know, some like uncles or whatever I haven't seen in like 10 years, basically. And they're like, oh, like you were that boy that always was reading when you were here on vacation. And it <laughs> made me remember like all the times where I was a kid and I'd use books as a social buffer or if mm -hmm. I was like, this place is fucking annoying. Mm -hmm. And then you have a book and like, I don't know, no one's really going to bother you unless right. they want to be an asshole. And so I guess it's also interesting how. It becomes like a survival tactic and a, like a social tool, too. Yeah, like, absolutely. did you ever use it in those ways? Do you remember? Yeah, I mean, I, definitely an escape. My mom, my mama would just take books away from, from me at the dinner table. That's how mm. much I was reading. And I would just grab the cereal box or grab the spaghetti box. That's how much I was in, like, yeah. into reading. Um, so, yeah, definitely as an escape. A social tool, yeah, I would carry certain books with me. So people would be like, hey, what are you reading? And then they would start a conversation because mm. I was too shy to start conversations. Um, yeah, and I still do that. So definitely using it as a gateway to like enter conversations with people that I probably wouldn't talk to. And I remember researching you because I research every guest. <laughs> um, and you said that you started writing short stories. Was it in middle school and high school? Yeah. Okay. My high school teacher kept my story like she wouldn't give it back. She's like, this is so good, Shonda. And she would not give my story back. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's when I, I think that's one of the first times her name was Miss Alligood, Mrs. Alligood. I'm going to say her name. She was my 10th grade English teacher in East Lawrence High School. I want to shout her out. Um, but yeah, that was like my first time I think somebody really saying, oh, you can actually do this. This is something you can do because I had been imagining it in my head, like mm. a secret type of thing. Like, can, is it possible for this, you know, country black girl to do this? And my teacher really affirmed that for me. Um, they all understood that I was the book person. Um, Ashonda's always going to be reading her book and I'm always very understanding and affirming of that. Yeah. And what books impacted you in a kid, as a kid in a way that made you maybe be prepared or want to be a writer mm. when it came to you? 
I had no business reading Terry McMillan, but I was reading Terry McMillan. What's that? Um, Terry McMillan, um, wait, I think Mama, her first book. Um, yeah, Terry McMillan's books. And then Tina McElroy Answer. She's a writer from Macon, Georgia. And I actually wrote her a letter <laughs> to ask her to be her intern. Oh, I think I remember re- <laughs> hearing about that too. Yeah, yeah. and I, 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 I spelled it out how I wanted to be a writer. So she made me believe I can do it because she was somebody who was from my home state. Um, and then I was just reading everybody. I was reading Stephen King when I should not have been reading Stephen mm. King. Um, Stephen King wow. taught me about storytelling, like keeping people's attention. Yeah. So I got obsessed with Stephen King and started re- checking all his books out of the library. Like the libraries were like, hey, Ashonda, hey, Miss Norris, what uh. you checking out today? And, you know, it would be a gigantic Stephen King book. I think I read it like three times oh, wow. as a kid. And his other sci-fi story where everybody disappears, or it's like this. I can't remember what happens, but I read Under that. Under the Dome? No, 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 it was an older one. I read that one like two or three times. I read a lot of, I repeated Stephen King's books. Why'd you read it It three times? It's, I like scary stuff. I, I don't know what I like. I was interested in scaring myself. Like there was a book called something about the magic garden of the garden or something. It's a horror story. I was reading, um horror short stories mm-hmm. I was checking those out so it scared me I was terrified of it like yeah. terrified but I kept reading it because I guess I I don't know I, I was trying to figure out the world or something yeah, you want a sense was, of adventure yeah and it just gave it made my heart beat fast and I liked that so yeah Stephen King was a big one too and Dean Koontz so I, mm. I um I was into like People are white guys I don't know it was weird like that's what I saw in the library yeah. you know the big, they were big and thick and it were easy to find. Yeah. And it's yeah. like those books. It's like you get you get one of those big books and you have a book for a whole month. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't so, have to go yeah. back for a while. But in Tina McElroy Anza, she had a series of books. So I would read all her books more than once. Um, she was a big one in my life. Um, oh, the Sweet Valley Twins. Mm-hmm. I had started dreaming about moving to Malibu. Had no clue about Malibu. <laughs> just wanted to be there. Um, my dream was to move to California, honestly, for undergrad. But I made it after grad school. So I got there. On our Small Majority podcast, Mm -hmm. you said that when you were in school, that poetry um, wasn't taught well. Mm -hmm. So could you kind of talk about that um, now in your life as an artist, as a poet, looking Mm -hmm. backwards at that time or how it was taught or is taught? Yeah, I actually did not have a great... Every time poetry came around, I was... I mean, I read it because I like reading, but I didn't really get it. I was like, what is this? And they were all teaching all these white, dead white guys. I mean, I love Whitman. You know, he's a great writer. They were teaching Whitman and T.S. Eliot, some of the other ones. And so I was, it didn't feel accessible to me. Mm-hmm. I guess I was trying to figure out what was happening. And then the teachers were teaching in a way where they were teaching us um, certain skills we were looking for, like certain literary devices. It wasn't about the emotional part of the poem at mm. all they were teaching us like craft parts of the, the technicalities poem. Mm-hmm. and we i don't know if we ever i can't remember if we ever had a chance to you know write our own poems but it was very um literary device heavy yeah so it made us you know most of us were like this is so boring oh my god we hate poetry so we really would walk around and saying it that we hate poetry and i find it super ironic that <laughs> i'm now a poet who thoroughly enjoys diving into poems um but i do feel like um especially in high school it's difficult to grab students with poetry 
Um, so because of that experience with my teaching, what I did was bring in, I taught students, um, Latinx and black students. So I brought in people who looked like them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it made a complete difference. I had students get really, emo- I had Mexican American students get really emotional because they had never read a Mexican American poet. Wow. And I used, um, gosh, his name is leaving me right now, but he's out of Chicago and I'm kicking myself because I cannot remember his name, but he has a poem called, I walk into every room and yell where the Mexicans at. Jose, his name is Jose. Uh, okay. And the students just like, they wanted to take the poem home. They asked to keep a copy of it. They wanted to write their own poems because for them, they had never seen anybody like that. And it made me feel like you have to show students people who look like them in the art. And then there was another poet, Jamila Woods. She wrote a poem called My Afro Puffs, I think. And my students deeply responded to that because Mm. they have been taught that they shouldn't wear their hair in Afro Puffs. They should always straighten their hair. Your Afro Puffs are not beautiful, but they really responded to that poem so much so that they wore Afro Puffs for like months after the poem. So, you know, because of my experience, because I wanted the students to really feel poems, that's how I taught poetry and it kind of made a difference. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you for that answer. And I definitely want to talk more about your teaching Mm -hmm. a little bit later. Um, But can you talk about like these stories that you're writing as a middle schooler and a high schooler? Like, what were they about? How long were they? Did you like view it as like something you wanted to keep at because you had a certain like goal in mind or like where was your head at? My head was really just creating a world where I can go to. So I had a lot of um, self-hate issues when I was growing up. Uh, I remember looking in the mirror trying to figure out how I can change my face because um, it wasn't really celebrated. And I wrote a story about this girl named Miracle who had ironically blue eyes and I had not read Toni Morrison yet. Mm. And, um, I think, I think her blue, I think I can't remember her blue eyes were natural or if she wanted to make them that and they became that in the story or if I just described her as a black girl with blue eyes. I just wanted her to have these pretty blue eyes. And I find that fascinating now. Um, but that was my story. So, Whatever made the young woman feel beautiful and to be able to escape, that's what I was writing. Um, I was also writing stories about nature. Like I used to make up games in my backyard and like they were mushroom people and they live in the mushroom house and they um, have a whole life. So I was creating stories like that. So really fantastic sci-fi type stories I was creating. Mm-hmm. Um, again, to give me a sense of escape because um, I grew up in a very you know, working class, very traditional Southern household. So I was looking for ways to clamor out of what I was being told that I have to do as a as yeah. a black girl. Yeah. And when you were creating, making art, was it something that you talked about to your family? Was it something that they encouraged or like, what was that part of the process? I think I hid it. I think instinctively I knew that I was supposed to not keep talking about it. I think yeah. I remember talking about it one or two times, but it was not favored like I guess my family's like well what are you gonna do with that um so I learned to keep it under wraps I actually forgot one of my dreams to be a novelist when I went back to my high school yearbook slash memory book and I wrote down I would be an award-winning novelist and I forgot my own dream and that was like five ten years ago and I was like wow so I, I was very instinctively knowing that I should hide it so there wasn't a lot of support because and where I come from, 
you know, that weren't writers. And then also, how do you get paid? How do you make a life of that? Um, so I didn't get a lot of support with my writing. Um, I knew to keep it a secret and I knew to keep it separate. I knew to get like a respectable job to, you know, pay the bills and things like that. A little bit about that, like how how you do, how you went to university, how you decided what you studied and how that led into like teaching and the work that you've done up yeah. until like semi recently. Like, can you talk sure. about that kind of chapter? Yeah, sure. So I went to undergrad at Payne College in Augusta, Georgia. I never forget because I wanted to be around black people. Since I couldn't go to California, I was going to be around black people because I had a really um, traumatizing high school experience. It was just, you know, very black, white, very like the lines was drawn. Like 50-50 at your high yeah, school? Kind of, maybe. I don't, I don't know the demographics, but we had race riots. That's how mm. bad it was. Yeah. Um, like like after games or or like, just a regular high school day and some somebody got pissed off and mm. we were we were balling brawling like it wasn't it was wow. intense that's the kind of school I came from where my principal well not my principal my aunt's principal I think he was the same principal for us because he didn't retire yet he got hurt in the fight it was it was intense so I had to go to a black I was like I'm going to a school with nothing but black people yeah. black teachers black professors black students and that's why I went to Payne because it was kind of close to home but I went to major in English because I told myself well that's how you be a writer mm -hmm. no one was telling me how to be a writer I had no clue yeah. and so I was like well if I major in English I get to read all these books I can learn how to be a writer Still keeping it a secret because I was like, you know, no one wants to like encourage me to be a writer. So, so your family knew you were studying English, but yes, it wasn't but they, like they a... didn't know it was for English lit. They thought okay. it was for teaching. Because I told my family, I was like, I want to be a lawyer. I mean, I guess I did want to be a lawyer, but it was kind of a lie. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I, was, I majored in English. My goal was to figure out how to be a writer. My family was like, oh, she might just teach later with that. Um, and so I get there and I'm reading all these books. James Baldwin comes into my life. Um, Zora Neale Hurston. I think I read Zora in high school, but I didn't understand the importance of the dialect because I heard it every day. Uh, so to see it written, okay. I was like, what is she trying to do? You know, like oh, I couldn't wow. figure her out okay. until I got to undergrad. Um, so I have all these writers and I had like a really supportive um, professor, Dr. Etheridge. I want to call her name out. She's an ancestor now. Um, was really encouraging about my writing. Um, I was writing essays. I was writing short stories in their classes. I deliberately took writing classes like electives along with my so-called writing I'm, I'm sorry courses I was supposed to be like mm -hmm. taking so for example I'm supposed to take English 202 I made sure I had a writing course that I was taking as well so I was practicing my writing that way uh, and all my friends knew that I was writing right like they I would write stuff for them or you know someone would ask me to write something um, I was writing papers for people and getting paid for mm. that. I um, never got to figure out how to do that in yeah, college. Yeah, I got People I knew I was good at it. Like, I was partying every night and had a straight 4.0. People uh, were like, how? And so I was uh, like, yeah, I know. Oh my God. I don't know uh, how. I was, so I was good at writing to, papers. Did you have to do like a foreign language requirement or anything? Spanish, I think. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. So uh. <laughs> <laughs> See, I was doing the same thing, but I got like a 2.9. No, I got a 4.0 or 3.9 or something. People was like, wait, what? But yeah, um, pain is where I learned to like cultivate my voice. I had a mm. professor who 
um, knew I liked writing. I was at that time I was very emotional about men and boys and guys, and he was like, "Ashunda, you're a great writer. Don't you want to write about something other than me?" <laughs> that was one of his notes. But he always had his coffee cup. That was one of his notes, and I was just like, "Oh, maybe I should try to write about something other than how oh men make me feel." So I was very emotional writer. Um, very, they call it confessional now. Yeah, or like on the what is it on the navel or what the fuck navel gazing? Yeah, which I hate it because it's very sexist. You yeah. know that you know women should be right about their experiences. But he yeah. had a point though. Yeah. Like I was very deep into my emotional core as a writer, so I was very anything I was feeling, I was writing about. So I was using the classes to write my short stories and to write my poems or to write essays. And on a, on a craft level. I mean, I guess I'm wondering how you see your work changing at that time from like mm. middle school, high school to college. Mm. Okay. So craft wise. Oh, wow. It changed. The, well, I still was thinking about my interior self. Yeah. But I did. I started thinking about how I'm going to make beginning, middles, ends and make people like stay with the story. Yeah. It wasn't more. I'm all about me, me, me. In a way it was, but still I wanted the reader to be a part of it. Yeah. Like I knew that. You know, women and girls in college were like, if they were straight, they were obsessed with, with guys and how they feel. So I was writing that kind of stuff because I knew somebody might, you know, kind of connect to it. But I still wasn't taking it. I wasn't thinking about craft the way I think about it now. Okay. Uh, it was very still an emotional th- through line that I was trying to reach. Um, but still trying to entertain people with the story. Yeah. But not really having a clue how to put a book together. Um, I was still just... You know, not taking it as seriously as I was supposed to take it. Because, again, I was just being told that, you know, you're going to be a teacher. You need to teach. That's the only thing you could do with an English degree. Yeah. You can't do anything else. So I was basically building my own dream. Now that I think about it, my own dreamscape. And I had a professor who um, I took a journalism course. And he said, do you want to be a journalist? I was like, maybe I want It's writing. So I write. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he got me an internship at Augusta chronicle oh wow the oldest newspaper in augusta in georgia i think actually. wow and i interned there and what, what did you do as an intern i had stories i got stories they let wow. me give them story ideas i wrote about when Aaliyah um passed away um i wrote about a lot of stuff um they gave they let me like pitch story ideas and you were like in an office mm-hmm. and i was in, in the day. newsroom Wow. I go in, I decide how many days I want to come in. I think I went five because I just like the vibe. Yeah. I like being in a space where this is an old school newsroom, like from, um, it's probably like since been there forever and it looked like a 70s newsroom, even though it was like the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, it was a traditional newsroom, like the click like clacking, the, the phones ringing, the... yelling across and wow. stories. Yeah, it was great. I had a great time. Um, so that was cool. But then I recognized that I didn't want to work in a space where everyone looked different from me. I think okay. I actually, I think I got a job offer. I think one black girl's left to go teach in Japan or something or China. And they asked me, I shouldn't do you, you know, you think you want to, you know, write? And I said, no. Because um, it was mostly white people. Working yeah. There. And I didn't know how to cultivate a career. I didn't know that you don't just get a job offer at Augusta Chronicle. Like people like die for those kind of jobs. Oh, wow. I had no clue. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So I said, I turned it down and accepted the job at the Black Weekly newspaper. Okay. Because I was very into, again, just, you know, holding on to a cultural allegiance instead yeah. of going with the so-called professional allegiance. Yeah. So I turned it down. Okay. Um, but it, it was, I think something traumatizing must have happened. I don't know, remember what it was, but 
I couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. I think there was some microaggressions happening that okay. I couldn't really deal with. I didn't have the support to deal with either. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was the only, I think I was the only black woman in the newsroom. Wow. After that, after that newswoman left to go teach, I was the only black woman. I know. It was crazy. So I turned it down and went to Augusta Focus. And you, you, so you graduated and went to the black weekly uh, newspaper? Or? Actually, I graduated and then did the internship. Okay. And they paid okay. decently. I could pay my rent on it. This okay. is this is like early 2000s. Yeah. Where you can still pay your rent with internships. Uh, <laughs> I oh, paid my wow. rent with that internship. Um, and it was my only job. And I was like, wow, this is, I can make yeah, you got money a job. doing this, You're right? Doing yeah, I was really excited that I was making money <laughs> yeah. writing. And sometimes I wasn't writing every day just because I was an intern. Um, so that was nice. And then after that, I think it was a year or so, maybe, maybe two years, I went to the weekly newspaper. I was getting paid less. They were underpaying me. Mm. They took advantage of that. And I didn't know how to negotiate my salary. Um, and it was hard to get a raise. It was almost impossible to get a raise. And I was the only reporter. Actually, no, it was two of us. And then when she left to go to another place, I was a sole reporter doing every single story and i i don't think i was making twenty thousand a year like how many stories were you writing a day or a week like what's the range five okay so eight maybe so so like 25 to 50 stories a week maybe wow yeah it was a lot it was a lot of stories and you saw my name everywhere at that time i was going by sean norris it was sean norris by sean norris by sean or everywhere in the paper and how long did you work there Oh, how long was I there? Maybe two years. I couldn't take it anymore. I was like, I got to get out of here. Uh, It was two years. I I I didn't get the raise that I wanted. I was like, I got to figure out a way out of this place. I think I worked there for two years. Oh, a year and a half. 2002 to 03, maybe? I can't remember. It was early 2000s. Um, But I applied to, you know what I applied to? I applied to journalism school at University of Georgia. Again, not understanding the politics. (laughs) So I didn't get in. Um... So I was like, okay, let me figure out something else. Maybe I shouldn't be a journalist. That's what I was thinking. Oh, maybe I shouldn't, mm, you know, pursue okay. journalism. Because again, not having any type of mentorship. Yeah. Um, which was difficult. So I was like, oh, let me figure out if I go. I should go to grad school in English Lit. Maybe I can be a professor and then write on the side, you know, just trying to figure out a way. Like pivot, maneuver. Right. And still be writing. Because yeah. I like, I kept my journalism stuff because I love to write. Um, and how do you think... Being a journalist shifted your writing or changed mm. your writing because I feel like that's something I think about as because I yeah. started doing journalism in 2016 and now it's like but I don't it, think about exactly how it translates or how it yeah. helped me be brief yeah it helped me get to the point get to, you know you write the lead and you go into the story it, it helped my interviewing skills it helped me come out of my shell it helped me use my power that people love to tell me stories. So I use that mm. my gift of people just telling me information and knowing how to ask the question. I know how to frame questions a certain way. So it made me be brief, which probably okay. helps with the poetry. Yeah. Um, I was really brief and, you know, getting to the point of the story. But I had a turning point where I did an interview with a writer. He had self-published his book and I was doing a profile on him. Mm. I had this deep sadness, like, why are you not trying to go write your books? Oh, wow. And I was like, you got to do something. And so, at what age were you then? 20... Three maybe okay. 22, 23. Yeah. So I still had this urge to write. I just didn't know how. But him, I kept interviewing people who were writing these books, and I was like, "Why am I not writing a book? I didn't want to write about people writing books. I wanted to write books." Yeah. So I said, "Okay, let me figure out something." And for me, it was going to school. Like that gets me out of the city. I couldn't afford it just to go on my own. 
So I said I was going to go to Atlanta or D.C. I applied to Clark Atlanta University and I applied to Howard. I said, whatever I get into, I go. But I got into both. Mm, (laughs) So I was like, oh, what am I going to do? So I told myself, if I go to Clark, I'm going to stay in Georgia for the rest of my life. I knew it instinctively that I probably wouldn't leave Georgia if I went to Clark. You know, going to Atlanta, you stay to go in school, you get a job there. Everybody knows you. So I challenged myself. I was like, no, go to D.C. And I also think I had come out yet. I wasn't out as queer yet. I think I was also looking for queerness. Okay. Subconsciously, maybe, because I think that city, D.C. was super black and it was super gay. So I was like, let me just go to D.C. and figure out what I'm going to do. And I went to Howard, um, which was hard. I didn't realize that every not everybody gets into Howard. Uh, I, I didn't realize how competitive okay. it is with the uh, with the grad school. Yeah. So I'm just like, ooh, you know, get the syllabus, and it's like, oh, read these books and how papers do. We were confused. We we're like, they want us to read how many books this week? Oh uh, wow. It was three okay. books. It was like Frederick Douglass. We were on a slave narrative. We had to read like oh, three different books mm. on slave narratives, I think, and something in another class. So each class assigned one book. And we had three classes. So you had to read three books a week plus write three papers every single week. And we were in shock. Like, are they serious? And we couldn't figure out the syllabus. So it was really, it was insane. I think people had mental breakdowns. I think I had a mental breakdown. I mean, I'm shocked because the way I survived undergrad was by reading the Amazon reviews. No, that was not going to work at Howard. You had to read it. You had to give a response. You had to be ready in class to give analysis. Howard was not playing any fucking games. That shit was so fucking hard. But I still use those skills today. So I can't say it didn't help. You know, I still use those skills. Still to this day. And in the classroom, how do you feel like you were challenged or? Oh, like I couldn't just say anything. Whatever you said, you had to back it up. Either from the book or like a past experience or like another text. Like it was all about your sources and critically analyzing not just flippantly saying something in class just to get the answer mm-hmm. out like well what do you mean by this yeah. and, so do you feel like yeah. you had an advantage because you had done journalism I thought I did but <laughs> those professors were not playing Dr. Trailer and Dr. Williams I'm gonna come and shout them out they were not playing with us like you had to show up um, and you had they knew that you if you read or not you, you could just tell so we had to read and so we didn't have a life. And I had a job, I think, at a restaurant. Three days a week, I was serving um, tapas at a Spanish restaurant in downtown D.C. and going to grad school. And I stayed on campus, like right across from campus. But I, they knew if we didn't read. So you had. So I was reading on the subway on the way to work. Wow. I couldn't watch Girlfriends. <laughs> my favorite show in town was Girlfriends. I could not watch my, my show. Like, I tried <laughs> try to shout out to Mara Brock and Kid. I tried oh to watch Girlfriends. Gosh. But yeah, um, Howard taught me a lot. Um, wow. Just about questioning, not taking the first answer as the right answer. Yeah. Delving deep into the text itself. What are they really saying? Like, what is this author really trying to do? Applying theories, coming up with our own theories to text was really eye-opening. And it was a two-year, three-year program? Two-year program, but I got out in three because I was so stressed. Okay. Yeah, it took me three years. It actually took me three years because I was trying to do a thesis that my professors were like, this is not going to work. What was your idea? I was very stubborn. I was trying to write about the blues narrative with a very contemporary text. Uh, What's her name? B.B. Moore Campbell's. The one she wrote about the so-called the Emmett Till story, and I was trying to use the blues narrative mm. with a contemporary text 
And they were like, no, this is not going to work. I can't remember why they said it wasn't, but I was fighting it, which is why I didn't graduate on time. <laughs> I ended up doing um, Alice Walker's The Third Life of Grange Copeland. So and it came out, it turned out nice, but I was mad. I was so angry, <laughs> which is why I ain't graduated. Like, you got to do this thesis. <laughs> no, you're probably so, like, yeah. I have to do all this work and you don't like my idea. Right. Like, come on. <laughs> I was fighting it tooth and nail. May came around and people graduated and I was not on that stage. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And in terms of like, you said you partially wanted to go there to find more queer scenes and more queer spaces. Do you feel like you got that out of your time there? Like, I did. You, you know that? why? Because not at Howard specifically because I worked at a restaurant and there was this um, openly gay guy his name was Marcus I'll never forget him and he would take me to all the gay clubs Um, and so much so that my boyfriend became my fiance at the time was upset like why are you going to all these clubs so he knew something that I didn't know to how to verbalize right or like why are you doing this and I wouldn't even tell people only certain people knew that I was going to all these gay clubs and then after, sometimes with um, with you know working at a restaurant, you all go out at the end of the day. We would just go to a gay club. That was just what we would do. Yeah, um, I had lots of fun. Dupont Circle, you know the whole thing. And he just showed me all the ropes, you know. And that's how I kind of tried to insert myself into queerness. And at, at the time, I had locks, so I was getting hit on by all the gay mm-hmm. girls, all the all the lesbians mm-hmm. were hitting on me, and I was just afraid of it. My sister was like, "What is wrong with you? Are you afraid of your own sexuality? What's going on?" They were asking me out and everything, and I was just like, "No, I don't know. Like, what are you doing?" I got so upset, like just not knowing that you know sexuality can be really fluid. Yeah. So I was like resisting in a way, but also flattered by it. Like, yeah. oh, they want to talk to me, you know? Okay. But not knowing what to do with the emotions at yeah. all. Yeah. Okay. And. Uh, take me from that period of time to like what you did after. Like, hmm, how did you go from after. how did you go from there to getting into filmmaking? Oh gosh! Oh, so I after I graduated from Howard, I still didn't know how to be a writer. I was like, oh, I have this degree. <laughs> what am I I'm supposed to go be academic and go do a PhD at Howard? Yeah, you know that was the thing. You get your MA, then you go straight into the PhD program, and then they funnel you into becoming a professor. But I didn't want to do that because I felt like I was going to get lost. So academic writing was like a respectable way to be a writer. But I was like, no, how am I going to be a writer? Could not figure it out and had to go teach. Um, I was like, how am I going to make money? How am I going to live? Because my uh, apartment was being paid for by um, financial aid. But then you had to leave when you're not a student. Mm. So I had to get a real apartment. I was like, I have to do something. I did not want to go to teach. I didn't have a teaching license. Uh, I didn't have no credentials. I just knew English lit. And I applied. I tried to do high school because I knew I wanted to work with older kids. So I wanted yeah. to do, you know, professorship. That was the closest thing. Did not get it. Had to teach middle school. Was not my favorite time. I think I lost my mind like several times. And how long did you teach middle school? Oh, Seven long years. Okay. Oh Every gosh. year telling myself, this is the year you're going to work on your book in the summer. This is the year you're going to work on your book during the holidays. But I was too tired. What was your book idea throughout those years? Uh, It was about a girl who goes to undergrad, gets pregnant, has an abortion. um, And her process of that. Um, I think that's what it was about. Undergrad. Okay. And this is the year you're going to work on your novel. And every year it passed. And I'll get more sad and more sad. And like, I'm trapped in this job. Like, these kids are annoying. You know, middle school is when they have all the... Hormones. Puberty, hormones. Yeah, and so it was just, 
I was dealing with attitudes that I didn't want to deal with, which is completely normal because it's adolescence. Yeah, but I didn't yeah. have the temperament for that. Oh, so it was rough. Like they were like, to the point where my colleagues were like, Norris, did you work out this morning? Because if I worked out, I was a smoother teacher. <laughs> the day went more They could tell, they could tell. They could tell when I didn't work out. I was like, Norris, you must have worked out this morning. Because they would hear me yelling at the kids. Like, oh, that's how stressed I was. Wow. And I don't like yelling at, I don't yell now, but yeah. at the time, I was a yell teacher. And it was not the greatest response to, to children being children. Yeah. Um, and just being themselves. So I, again, I was like, how am I going to figure this out? I got to escape. And by that time, I got engaged. So I lived in PG County, which is very elite, very upper PG middle class. PG County in D.C.? Mm, it's a suburb in Maryland. Okay, so it's okay. like a very wealthy black area. I think it's one of the wealthiest in the country. Um, only black people in positions of power, you know, middle class, very upper middle class, upper, upper middle class black people, yeah. right? Um, or even high class if that's a thing like the class levels were varied but you had to make a certain income to live okay. there um, but it's mostly professional black professionals teachers doctors lawyers you know the drill um, that's why I was living I had a fiance um, eventually got well got married but not really kind of like doing it for the the license mm -hmm. um, but then I regretted it immediately after I did it I was like oh this is not going to work and it, I had told him it wasn't going to work and you know, trying to work that out. So we broke up. It was not great. It was very dramified. He took the dog. It was so traumatic. Oh, um, but what it did get me was to poetry again. I was trying to figure out, <laughs> I was on his computer trying to figure out <laughs> if he was cheating on me and to prove it. And I found this open mic and I went to this open mic. It had, it had wine and cheese and I was drinking a lot because mm. I was teaching. I was like, oh, free wine and free cheese. <laughs> that's what attracted me, not the poetry. And that's how I got into poetry. I was like, oh, maybe I can start writing poetry again. And then, yes, it was connected to a man. Yes, he was a poet. Yes, he was gorgeous. Yes, he was Caribbean. Oh, wow. Okay, yes. I never knew this plot twist. Yeah, a plot twist. Oh, my gosh. Um, and so I think he said something like, you should write a poem and get on the mic. And I was like, I should, shouldn't I? This is what sexual like energy does. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I'm about to I can up? write a poem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lust feel poem. So I wrote a poem and got on the, on the mic. And it was exhilarating. I was Do you like, remember oh. that poem or what the vibe oh, was? Oh, God, or? it was such a nasty poem. It was an erotic poem. Oh. It was so erotic. Because I was thinking about him. It was so erotic. Um, people jo were like, Some Love Jones type Right, shit. and I think I, I gave up. I, gave, I put my stage name as a name that the Jamaicans in um, Jamaica gave me, the roster man. They was like, oh, you roster empress. I had the long, long locks. Mm. So I use that as my stage name. Because at the time, you shouldn't be teaching and doing yeah. art stuff. So yeah. I did the stage name. So that's how I got into poetry. Um, and started going to all the open mics. Started, like, you know... Put, get it on the mic, signing my name. Everybody started knowing who I was, you know, roster empress on the mic and, you know, that kind of stuff. So, I, you know, my head, you know, confidence just surged with poetry. I thought I could do anything. I started hosting um, at Bohemian Caverns, different places. Over what, over what span of time? So this is 2000, maybe nine, maybe 10 to 2012, I think. Maybe two years or so. Okay. So I'm just writing poems and like, oh, I can, I can really do this and... 
I think this is something I can do. And I was still teaching. So it, it made teaching easier. So I had something to look forward to. So in the mornings, I would give students their writing assignment. I'd be over there writing poems. So it made it bearable. Mm. So poetry was keeping me like sane. And that was when you were still teaching middle school. Okay. Yeah, still teaching middle school. So fast forward, um, I did the poetry stuff. I decided, you know what? I should really, I had been secretly writing scripts at this time. I had been writing specs for girlfriends. Um, specs for, you know, writing feature scripts, trying to figure out my, you know, if I can be a TV writer. I got rejected from everything, but I told myself, hey, if I can do poetry, I can do scripts. I'm moving to LA mm-hmm. on a whim. I was like, I'm selling this house. I had a big ass house. Like my friend, called his, he called it a mini mansion. He was like, how you clean oh, that mini mansion? Wow. I was like, I have a maid, sir. Thank you. So yeah, it was a mini mansion, like a cute little suburb and a cul-de-sac and everything. I said, I'm selling this house. I'm moving to LA. At what age? How old was I? I think I was early 30s. I wasn't older than 32. And again, in your 30s, when you get there, it's a transformation happens. It's like you either go with the life that somebody told you to go with or you go on another path. Like you really like get serious about, you know, just life. Something just shifts. Yeah. But I mean, what was it? Were there signs at the time? Mm -hmm. Do you feel like Like it wasn't working out in a relationship? I really wanted to get serious about trying to figure out how I was going to be a writer I had had some success as a as a spoken word poet. I think I find, I was in a slam and went to the finals. Mm. So it was just really like affirming that okay, this is something that I can do. I was like, if I can do this, I can find I can make that other dream come true, which is writing scripts. You know, so it's just a confidence booster type of thing happening. And what was it about TV that interested you so much? You know, that's so I always watched it with my dad. Yeah. Like we will we will go to this is when this is I'm eight I'm dating myself, but this is when you have the VCRs. You recorded on the VCRs. And you of course yeah. on the VCRs. And then you we had this little place called Pat's Video and we'll go every week every weekend I would go to Pat's Video with my father or my mother and pick out videos. And my father, you know, we watch movies together and watch TV together all the time. I was always watching it. That's a good question. What made me think I can write TV? I think probably girlfriends, maybe. Mm-hmm. Seeing those black women on TV, I was like, oh, maybe I can do this. You yeah, know, just trying yeah, to be a writer. Like, yeah. actually probably having really big dreams to be a writer and filmmaker and then not knowing how to make it happen. Like, yeah. my dreams were kind of, like, silenced or, like, you can't do, like, a whisper, like, you can't do that. So then not making it happen. But I've always watched TV and always loved it. So I was like, oh, maybe I can try to write TV. Um, so I moved to LA with the intention of becoming a TV writer, which is not as easy as it sounds. And I had no clue. All the doors are shut. You don't yeah. know anybody. You don't have a spit script. You don't have a, you know, scripts, right? You need more scripts. Um, so to take control of my own narrative and take control of my own career, I was like, I'm just going to direct a script that I wrote. So I used um, excerpts from my novel that I was working on to turn into a script. Okay, because that's what I was thinking earlier, because mm-hmm. I watched two of your films earlier. Weeks. I watched 12 Weeks in Soft Times. And yeah, yeah. And when you mentioned, like, let's watch someone in undergrad, and they, I was like, they that 12 weeks? Yeah, it's 12 weeks. So I okay, used wow. so I was like, oh, I, maybe the novel thing is not working out. Maybe I can make it into a movie. So I just did like a little short film about this girl who gets pregnant. It's like a super scare. Um, just trying to prove to myself that I can make a movie. And of course, I was not fully happy with my product. But my friend was like, you made the movie. You finished it. Be proud. Yeah. I had to learn that it's a process to get to like the brilliance in your brain. Yeah, yeah. You know, and she taught me that, hey, you need to just be proud of your work. So I was proud of it. And I put it out there. Um, but after that, I had the bug. 
I couldn't, nothing could stop me from making a movie. I was like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Okay. And yeah. what was it about that first process that, what did it open up in you? Like, what did it help you? Like, what? That I could tell my story, that I could have control of my story, that I could um, help someone else's experience. It made me feel like I was in control of my narrative. It made me feel like I could do anything. Directing a movie makes you feel like you can do anything in the world. And I wanted the feeling again. I wanted to get better at it. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to impress myself each time I make a movie. Like, cause I watch movies all the time and they did, my movies don't look like the movies that I like. So I was like, no, let me just keep going to, you know, prove to myself that this is something I can do and I can get better at it. Yeah. And from watching 12 weeks, <laughs> That movie is so it's rough around the edge. No, no, no. I, I'm only giggling because <laughs> I feel like I watched it and I was with my friend earlier and I was like, who this is giving Tyler Perry? <laughs> and not and not in a bad way. It's like it's like in the way where you're like, ooh, black people are. <laughs> and so I feel like in that exact way, I, mm -hmm. I wanted to, I don't know, I wanted to kind of I don't know, it's yeah, because it's I definitely liked it. I just think it pushed some of those buttons where I saw conversations happening in it and I was like oh my god I know and I look back at my old self like girl you have grown so much yeah and so can you talk about why it was and is so important that you made that movie um because I needed to get that story out of me like I was very ashamed of my abortion like I don't think a lot of people I don't think only certain friends know if you read my poems if you watch my work you know that's something I've been through so I thought it was important for black girls to say, hey, I got pregnant. I didn't want the baby. There's no way I'm having this baby. There's got to be a way for me to get out of this situation. Um, so that's why I was doing it, too, um, mm -hmm. to like just say to myself, like, this is something that can be told and you don't have to have a lot of shame around it. So even though the film, you know, is, isn't my best work, what I will say about it is that it made me feel safe about my own story. Mm -hmm. It, I took shame away from my own story. Like I used to write these really um, shame-filled, guilt-ridden stories about having an abortion. Um, but I don't feel the same way. And that, that film helped me do that, even though there was some guilt-ridden stuff happening in the film, like mm -hmm. make it, trying to make her feel guilty and all kind of nonsense, heteronormative stuff that was happening in the film. But now, as a person sitting here talking to you, I don't feel any guilt about that. Like you know, having that choice. And yeah. I think a lot of people, especially girls around the country who go to school, crazy night in undergrad, and you get pregnant, what are you going to do? Um, and I think it's okay to say, I don't want children. Yeah. Or I don't want children right now. This is not something I can do. So that's what that film helped me do. Yeah. And I think that's, it's beautiful because I think it goes against stigma. I think mm -hmm. stigma is like a term that's thrown around, but I feel like even for me lately, I've been thinking like, Oh, it's a th real thing that lives around mm -hmm. us. It's a kind of violence. It's in the way that people react to talking about something. It's in the way that people... Because like, even when I was watching it, like the scene that really struck me was when they were sitting on the bleachers and oh, he kept saying, yeah. like, why, why do you think I'd be okay with that? Why would I be okay with yeah. that? And, and to me, it's like the epitome of stigma. It's the assumption that everyone should think the same way about something mm -hmm. and everyone should come to the same conclusion despite different people being affected differently by the same process or action. Yeah. And I feel like that, that was something, I, and I feel like it was painful to watch in a way, but it also, I don't know, it was real. It, it was real, but I was being shamed too, like for my decision, which, and if I, 
I wouldn't make the same film now at mm-hmm. all. Like I would have Leela way more affirmative in her decision, right? Um, I would give her some more gumption. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was my experience at the time. Like people were shaming me. I had a friend who, well, I'm having my baby. Okay, girl. I did not want to have a kid <laughs> at all. I remember that I have. I was like, there's no way I'm having this fucking baby. Like yeah. there's no way. Um, and in my ex at the time, yeah, he was very just not with the program. And I was like, I can't do this. I cannot raise a child. Um, so looking back on it, it was a real experience. But I know now in my growth, I'll probably make a totally different film, which is the beauty of growing as an artist. Yeah. yeah. And so you made Soft Times and was the next one. Or no, you made 12 Weeks and Did the I next one soft was times. Soft Times. Yeah, um, Soft so Times. So can you talk about the transition from that to Soft Times? Because yeah. for me, I was watching it and I kept thinking the phrase that I wanted to come to this with is gender is a continuous negotiation. Continuous, right? Like yeah. even for me as somebody who's out now, like I look back and I kind of cring at the like, Gender norms, right? Or like, because the part that got me, I, the, <laughs> we talk about it. Let's talk about the, it. The when the guy was like, mm. yeah, that was the part that got me. When I was like, oh my. And so, for reference, if I can describe, soft times yes. is about a woman in a relationship, and she's dissatisfied with her partner in numerous ways, but generally in the way the film shows how he sexually performs and there's what she expresses verbally to him and the people around her and what she thinks internally. And near the end, there's a conversation between her and her partner where he literally puts his finger over her mouth and is like, and I saw that and I was like, "Ah." (laughs) it shook me. Like I, I, it shook me. Yeah. But yeah, why did I make that? Oh, because my sister, I was complaining at the time. This is a real experience. I was complaining at the time about a partner who was not performing. And I was like, I can't take this. This is not, this is not something I need to be dealing with. And then also just not understanding that girl, it's cause you queer it too. Like this, mm. this is not gonna be satisfying any type of way. Yeah, the yeah. way I've engaged in past with men. Um, and so I, she's like, you should just write something. I was like, I'm not doing that. Right, so I'm take that seriously. But I did it as a comedy, like, oh, what if this is real, you know? And then also the response that people had to it in class made me say, oh, I should make it because people were like, well, she's not likable. And it's, you know, no one talks about men who have small members. Like, you shouldn't do that as a woman. So I was like, oh, I should. Because mm. I wasn't even going to make it. I was like, oh, this is a script, whatever. But yeah. when people kept saying to me that she shouldn't exist like that, she shouldn't want better in a relationship. Yeah. Well, she shouldn't verbalize that she's unhappy because it's just sex. I was like, oh, I should just make this. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe this is a big question. And maybe it's related to how I felt from both of your, those two films, because those are the only ones I've been able to see. And kind of our questions about Atlanta, Mm -hmm. because I really want to get into like Mm self-erasure. But do you think the gender binary, when it's a guy and a girl who have both have heteronormative ideals. Do you think even on a storytelling level, we aren't taught to bring a conversation to fruition? Like it's not possible. It's not, it's not right. possible to come to that place where you both are on the same page or there's right. the middle ground. Cause I, cause I feel like in both of those, I saw like definitive, like 
cutoffs or gaslighting. And, and, and to me, that's why I also said gender is a negotiation. Mm-hmm. But could you kind of talk about that? Yeah, because that's why I was feeling in my own life. Like there was never moments for me to fully express something that I had an issue with. And then someone responded like, OK, this is a problem. Maybe we should try to fix it. And that's been in all my heteronormative relationships yeah. where I'm trying to verbalize something. And the guy is telling me that it's not possible. Yeah. Um, but I didn't have a language at the time to understand that it was happening because of sexism. And it was also happening because I'm a black woman and because I, I don't deserve safety or I don't deserve yeah. to have happiness. or I don't deserve to be pleased. So, yeah, it was it was this friction there where I'm always being stopped from having whatever desire that I want to have. Um, and I think that made it more complicated, too, like. That that's the norm for relationships in my experience with men. Like, why is there this pushback to something that can be healthy for the relationship for both people? Yeah. 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 Definitely. Yeah. Um, and looking back, like, how did you, how do you feel now about people's reactions to both of those? Oh my films? goodness. I just kind of let it try to let it live. I'm not that person anymore. You know, yeah. I was pers- that person then when I was making the films. So I kind of leave it at that because <laughs> when I, again, I would make those films today. I'm just yeah. going to be honest. I would, if I did, they would have different negotiations because I'm all right now. I'm in a space where I'm trying to bring in like what are possibilities for heteronormative relationships? What are the possibilities for genders? Or, mm-hmm. you know, I'm thinking about those possibilities more than I was before. It was more so just, oh, this is my experience. You know, this is men. And now understanding why men behave like I had an ex tell me. I do things to you to push your buttons to see how much you can take. Mm-hmm. And if that's said to me, you know, and, and if you think about the films, you can see the, like, yeah. you can see where someone's trying to say something just yeah. to, like, piss you off or make you feel a certain, like, let your needs are not valid. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I know. Oh, my God. That's wild. Mm-hmm. It's wild, but it's also, I, I believe it. So it's not that wild. <laughs> ah! um, yeah. Can you talk about kind of your shift and like how you approach filmmaking from those first two films mm-hmm. to like kind of how I kind of view like you did um, I Am Fundi mm-hmm. and uh, Mino a diasporic myth so yeah. could you kind of talk about the shift and what that was and what that mm-hmm. what was that process yeah so 2015 after I made um, soft times I didn't know what I was going to do I applied to this program got in and we made a documentary um, and I had always been interested in documentaries again just Stunting my own dreams and then they come true and I'm like, oh, this can happen. Um, so I really enjoyed that process because it was about um, editing and just putting a film together. But there were also issues because, you know, I was the only black American woman. We're making a film in Africa, in Uganda, in a place where we, we're not, we don't live there. Everybody else is white. So it is this kind of like voyeuristic thing I was trying to avoid with the mm-hmm. film, which is why you see the people how they exist like trying to put them in their place not trying to make anything about poverty yeah trying to give them some some light and some agency throughout the film and after i made that i think i didn't know where i was gonna go with my films but i think i started reading lots of um black um radical um tradition texts right (laughs) um i started getting into Haile garima I started getting into filmmakers who were not thinking about how I was taught to make mm. films. Yeah, okay. So I had I went to I didn't go to technically film school, but kind of film school. Like LACC was a city college that you know LACC go and you take classes, get a degree if you want to, transfer to USC if you want to. But I wasn't interested in that. I just wanted to learn the craft. Yeah. And when I saw these people talking about how 
film is colonial. You know, the camera is colonial. It's been used to do these things. I was like, wait, what? And I started digging deeper and deeper and deeper. Charles Burnett and Julie Dash and Usmane Sambine and um, Med Hundo and all these people who were just going against like the grain of what film can be. Like I was mesmerized. Mm. So I knew that my next film was gonna challenge something, right? Like I was gonna do something that was a little bit different. Um, and then even in making that film, you know, there are some issues with that film. I'm proud of it because it looks way better than other films and et cetera, et cetera. But also, again, I'm still challenging myself. Like, what am I going to talk about as far like what am I going to do with the camera? Right. How am I using the camera? And I think one of the black girls who watched, she said, the way you flip the gaze, she said, the way you paid attention to your characters with the camera. She said, I never seen black women get seen like that. Mm. Um, she said, normally. Yeah. I mean, you have them in Julie Dash's film. She does it a lot. She makes you focus on the black female frame. Like, you cannot look away. Um, and so, yeah, that's my, that was been part of my mission since 2015, 2016, 17 area years where I'm like, okay, I'm getting... I didn't know that you can be that control of the film as a black yeah. person. I was just thinking... You have to do what all these white people say you have to do with scripts yeah. and films. And then I got into French New Wave. Whole nother. Wow, and we're okay. in France. You know, a whole nother ish, you know, door opened yeah. up for me. Like, oh, you can just have a film where a woman just drives around France all day. I can yeah. just have a drive around LA or Georgia yeah, all day. Yeah. You know, or I can just have characters lounging on I have a scene in one of my scripts I'm writing about two queer black girls just lounging on the couch and like reciting poetry to each other. Like you can do that. Yeah. Like I love I, that's why I love like slice life. of night or mm -hmm. slice of life things because it's like Yeah. And even like doing that for black people. Yeah, specifically black people, queer black people, black women, you know, non-binary, yeah. like just to sit and exist. I didn't know I can do that. I thought I had to follow all these rules, yeah. which is what I was doing in my early work. You can see I'm trying to follow all the rules that I'm supposed to follow with scripts and follow all the rules, how you put black people on screen. Yeah. Um, and I'm not interested in that anymore. Like I'm trying to, you know, build a new narrative language with, uh, with film. So, yeah. yeah. And... How would you describe what the black like woman's frame or gaze, the black queer mm. uh, frame or gazes on like a cinematic level? Like what are, what are you reaching for? Like what are you like what are you hoping to crystallize in your work yeah. that contributes to that? Yeah, like I use Bell Hooks as oppositional gaze. It's a great essay about black women spectators and how we look at film and how we can use film to make the get, you know, one, watching the film, being oppositional, like you're completely like, you know, negating or theorizing about the film. But then also when you take control of the camera, how you're placing the camera on the black female frame. Like, mm -hmm. what are you doing with the black female frame? How are you framing it? How is it like lit? What is she saying? What is she doing? That's where I'm, I'm going for um, in my work. Um, yeah. Like I'm trying to make people think deeply like about black women characters. Like we don't have to always exist in struggle. Um, we don't have to always exist um, fighting someone for our autonomy, which is what my early works were doing. Like trying to get autonomy from someone else, but mm -hmm. you can just do it yourself. Um, yeah, that's what I'm going for um, with the work where I'm trying to make sure 
black girls see themselves in some kind of way. Yeah. It doesn't have to be perfect, right? I think we have a right to be complex and varied and all of that good stuff. Um, but outside of what the gaze has already given us, we've we've seen we've seen how black women have been shown to us. Like what is a different way that we're being given to each other? And I think um there are a lot of filmmakers that's doing some good work with that. Jatavia Gary is one artist who's really doing great work. Um with the black female frame and just questioning or using film in a way that you're not taught to do as a black woman. You're mm -hmm. supposed to take tools they give you, use the master's tools to build whatever master's house they want. They want you to how the black female frame should look. Yeah. But I think people like her, you know, what I'm trying to do and aiming for is giving you a different vision of what that looks like. Okay. Thank you for that answer. Yeah. Um, maybe just a few more questions. What advice would you have for other filmmakers or artists that are coming up about how to not erase themselves from their own oh, work? Oh, gosh. Advice. Because, like, <laughs> when you talked about that to me before, like, I, I think about the fact that I started writing when I was 12 because a teacher assigned me, assigned me a short story. And until... I was 19, I wrote white characters. Mm -hmm. And it was mainly because, like, it was mainly kind of a curiosity because I didn't grow up around any white people, but it was also, to me, very steeped in, like, all these isms and, like, I didn't see, like, black literature mm -hmm. as valuable in the way that it was presented to me or... I don't know. And so I guess I'm wondering, like, what advice would you have for younger people that are navigating that or... Oh, gosh. I'm so, I always leery of giving advice, but I think I'm going to say some things that work for me. Have a mission. Like, make sure you know what you want to do. Keep doing it. Um, don't let all these systems... We live in like a... Bell says it's white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchal... I would say delusion. Like we live in a world of delusion and illusion. So you have to reject all of that around you unless that's your goal because some people's goal is to go into these systems and you know enjoy those but if you're an artist who's radically trying to negate images or flip images or create your own images i would say keep making your work and there's somebody out there who wants to see it um try to find your people again i'm talking speaking from experience <laughs> you know it's hard to find those people in certain places wherever you are um yeah, keep believing in yourself. I know that sounds so like wonky and, you know, a little lame kind of, but it helps that you have to understand that. Like, I think for all his problematic type of black female characters, John Singleton says like, you got to walk up in that bitch like you own it. Mm -hmm. Like this room is yours. They're going to make the movie. And if they ain't, you're going to figure out a way to make your movie. You know what I'm saying? With that kind of energy. I think that, and read a lot. Like I read a lot. I, I didn't say before in a previous question that Zora Neale Hurston is also like a, not visually, like if I can bring something to life visually, it's yeah. what Zora and Hurston's doing. It's kind of like, like a North Star day, for you. Right, like everyday black people. So read, right? And find people in literature that you like connect to um, that'll kind of help. Watch films from every part of the world. I watch films from, in, from France, from Argentina, 
from Thailand. I watched yeah. him from Cuba. I love, I love Thai horror. Oh my goodness. There's some stuff I'm like, oh. oh. <laughs> For like Korean dramas or yes. acting. It's just like, yeah. Oh. So, yes. What's that? The Handmaiden by oh, Park. Yeah. Um, I, th- I forgot his, his full name. It's called The Handmaiden. It's this Asian film um, and it's so good. So watch films from everywhere. Don't just watch American films because we're very... We tell stories a different way. Yeah. So I think people should watch films from all over the world. So I'm going to give a plug to Criterion Channel for all their issues <laughs> with not having black, um, as many black people that do have other people. They have a great array of films from all over the world. I found a film from Brazil that I had never heard of, like uh, Brazilian filmmakers or Portuguese filmmakers uh, or, you know, South yeah. African. It's everywhere. Yeah, I have an essay in a queer horror anthology queer horror film anthology coming mm-hmm. out later this year and it's about a Brazilian lesbian werewolf See, movie. See, yeah. Was, so, I watched it like I was that. Like, like, <laughs> yeah, it's called Good Manners. It's so good. Oh, The Lure is also yeah. a good one. It's, ah. it's, it's, it's Polish. It's a okay. Polish film about mermaids. Oh, it's like horror. Okay. Like shit like that. Just watch stuff like that. Get okay. yourself out. Unless, again, unless you want to be a part of the whole imperialist type of system, that's fine. But if you're looking towards making something different, I would say watch all of those films. Okay. Yeah. And uh, last question is, where can people find you and your work out there? Oh, okay. I have a website, ashunda.com, A-S-H-U-N-D-A. You can watch my current film, Mino and Diasporic Myth on Quilly TV. Um, you can find me on Instagram at R Empress is at R-E-M-P-R-E-S-S. Um, yeah. Okay, well, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Prince. This was great. I enjoyed it. Good talk.